Hello, I'm Hepzibah Anderson, standing in for Jason Solomons this month. Welcome to a special edition of Sounds Jewish, direct from Jewish Book Week, one of the literary highlights of the year. A festival where the great and good and the controversial gather to debate the meaning of life and what makes a great Jewish story. In the show this month, we'll be catching up with a host of writers, including A.B. Hoshua. We'll be asking the acclaimed Israeli novelist if writers like him are still listened to in their native land. Jamie Attenberg and her depiction of Jewish-American life in the Burbs. Why is her main character eating herself to death? The extraordinary story of the man dubbed the Austrian Dreyfus, who went on to become one of the 20th century's most original celebrity photographers. We'll be speaking to debut novelist Austin Ratner about his novel. And in this Oscar week, Los Angeles isn't the only place for emotional acceptance speeches. We'll have one of our own here too when the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize for Literature is announced. I'm one of the judges, but I'll be keeping quiet until we reveal the winner at the end of the show. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. This is the second year that Jewish Book Week has been running from its new location, King's Place, just next to The Guardian HQ, in fact, in London's King's Cross. This year they've taken over the entire venue. There's a multitude of writers, essayists, academics, politicians dropping by to speak. From David Miliband, who's talking right now, to Aleph Bet Yehoshua, who's going to be speaking later on this evening. And there's Rachel Lichtenstein later in the week. The Guardian's own Kira Cochran is going to be chairing a session later on this week. Then there's Lisa Jardine, Jacqueline Rose, and a list that goes on and on and on. But I am going to stop because we've just seen Hester Abrams, the festival's new director. Hester, how's it going? Well, I'm really enjoying myself, and uh, that doesn't mean there's not lots and lots of people rushing up and down the building wondering what's going on, but uh, um, I think it's really going with a swing. We're so thrilled to be back in King's Place, and uh, the crowds today have been phenomenal, and apparently no complaints, but you never know. Um, we've got 200 contributors from 15 countries but I mean it's not really a numbers game it's really about people's pleasure and about the encounters that we can create for people coming from all over the world there have been several conversations today I know that would never have taken place if we hadn't brought them together Um, Giles Fraser, Canon Giles Fraser with Naomi Alderman and I wasn't in that session but I I understand that they discovered they had family in common they were cousins. <laughs> although Only at Jewish Book Week. <laughs> yes, although apparently of different religions. It's a beautifully curated programme, obviously, but uh, the rogue element is the audience. There comes a point when you just have to toss it out there like a, like a novelist with their novel. And are there any themes that have emerged in the, the audience's questions at the end of the sessions yet? Um, people try to outdo the cleverness of the speakers. <laughs> And then there's always the one which is like, uh, well, um, either grandstanding or uh, can I tell you the story about my uncle? Because everybody feels like they are part of a big, big family. And, you know, we're very privileged in that sense. But this festival isn't only for Jewish people. I think we've been quite careful to make sure that we have presented stories and we've, we've, we've not used shorthand. We've explained what things are. You don't have to be Jewish to write a book that will be eligible for Jewish Book Week. The content, and then of course we have a long discussion about what is Jewish content and what is Jewish writing. I think it's about the sensibility, things that are interesting to Jews, things that are interesting to cultures where Jews have lived as well, i.e. not exclusively uh, about or for Jews. And um, 
It's also about writing. It's about stories. It's about books. It's about the art form. It's about recording experience. It's about the past and the future. We, we should let you get on. I know you're, you're dashing hither and thither and you've just grabbed a sandwich, so we should let you go and eat or listen or read. A.B. Yoshua is one of Israel's most acclaimed novelists and essayists, with Mr. Manny, The Lover, and Facing the Forest among his best-known works. He's also one of the elder statesmen of the Israeli peace movement. His latest novel, The Retrospective, depicts a filmmaker in the autumn of his life, looking back on his early career, wondering about a fateful choice he made long ago. Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland caught up with Yoshua before their on-stage interview and started by asking whether Israeli writers still enjoyed a special prestige in their homeland. The respect, perhaps, it's, uh, it's done because the situation is complicated and there is a tradition of, uh, I would say, uh, listening to intellectual. Perhaps it is coming from the ancient time in which the prophets were talking and people were listening to them. But if I will have, if you will ask me if we have influence on the, on the, I would say, the leaders of Israel, I don't think that if summing up all the years that we were from time to time, Amos likes very much to talk to Prime Minister. I Amos Oz. Yes, yes, less. But uh, I don't think we had a great influence on them. But it was always an influence on the media. And the media is far more important for the political uh, enterprise, yeah. Your new novel, The Retrospective, is its title in English. The central character there is not a writer, but a film director. And I couldn't help but think there that that was in keeping with a trend noticeable in Israel, that this country of great writers, you and we've mentioned Amos Oz and David Grossman and others, is now becoming known as an exporter of movies and TV in particular. The success of the shows that in America have become in treatment and homeland. Does that mean that something is happening in Israel, in the culture, in Hebrew culture perhaps, that the word is giving way to the image? I think both. I mean, of course, there is a more a flexibility in the uh, movie industry and of course the question of the language because in the time when I was a kid I will never go to a Israeli movie because the the dialogue would seem to me so artificial and so unpleasant and it was coming from the tradition of the theater but uh, uh, today the question of film it was also related to me because at least 10 of my works and done into uh, films. So I had a kind of a slight experience with the relationship with the film. But I think the main reason was in order, because I wanted not to take a writer as the main figure, but I wanted to deal and to dig into the question of the creation itself. And in the creation itself, I would say, I am, as a writer, I am a director, I am a scriptwriter, I am an actor, I am a photographer. I am doing all this function. In order to understand what is happening in the writer himself, I was coming to the cinema in order to, to separate all these functions and to make them 
characters, individual characters, and see how the dynamics is working. These so are it, in fact all splinters of you as a writer. Yes, yes. So it was a way to demonstrate the forces in myself, and I think in many, I, I would say, uh, artists by themselves, even let's say painter, it's always the question of the imagination, of the fantasy, of the breakthrough of forms, and the other side of making it reliable, and making it in order, making it communicative with the with the um, consumer. All these dynamics play between these two forces was important for me, and this is the reason why I choose film and not writing another writer who finds a manuscript of another writer. You know all these books about writers. And the character is somebody who's coming, just as you are now actually, from Israel to Europe to tell and talk about his work. Is there still something particular, or maybe only now, something particular that Israel has, Israeli artists and storytellers have, to tell the wider world? I think that worldwide the, 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 the literature and film and all these things are becoming more and more international. But I, in my novels, it was in the return from India, and it was also in the mission of the human resource person, and the question of friendly fire, and all these novels, I always try to keep a kind of the Jewish, uh, you know, wide looking upon the world. And in this sense, my Israelis are coming only to a short visit here and there in India or in, in uh, Russia or in other places, not in order to settle there or not to do the story there, but in order to get another point of view about the uh, uh, writing. Because one of the fears that Israel is a little bit provincial because and losing this wideness that was in the Jewish literature and the Jewish activity uh, before. Now, A.B. Joshua is off doing his event, and it's, it's sold out, so there is no sneaking into that one. Uh, instead, we've come to the, the bookshop, which has a very library-ish feel right now. It's very quiet, just some serious, serious bibliophiles perusing these chin-high piles of shiny, pristine books. Um, I can see right in front of me a, a, a sort of a field of Howard Jacobson's newly jacketed. Also a biography of Portnoy's Complaint. Portnoy's Complaint has its own biography. And also some cookery books, which is particularly exciting because we're going to be talking about food and Jews later on with Jamie Attenberg. Uh, among these browsers, I have found one lady who earlier on was in character as a professional schmoozer. Who are you and, and who were you until two hours ago? Well, I'm Lisa Gornick and I was schmoozing uh, two hours ago for about five, I think it was, I think it was five hours I was schmoozing. It was intense. I feel I've just schmoozed had to, out. I'm schmoozed out. I've had to come to the bookshop for a bit of relief, uh, which I don't know if it's the right place to come, but I did. And um, I was schmoozing, getting people to um, construct their own Woody Allen film with themselves as the main protagonist. So we were exploring what is a Woody Allen film and doing the first person film with their stories. How did it work? Tell me, tell me how you went about doing this. Well, I'd kind of find out about their life and stuff that maybe they were feeling insecure about or 
Um, I was trying to find Woody Allen type tropes and I certainly found them. A lot of them were having kind of relationships between huge age gap differences or they were going out with non-Jews or they weren't Jewish themselves but they thought they were Jewish or they looked Jewish. So it's all this stuff, it suddenly became a real Woody Allen fest inside the um, lounge in there. And um, but we were finding humour in it. And then I would, uh, as they were telling me their stuff, I would draw it and write out a kind of scenario of a Woody Allen type film. If I was in a Woody Allen movie, who am I? Are you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you want to go there? Okay, let's go there. So, you're, what do you do for a living? Uh, this and, and that, she says, tapping the pile of books. Reading and writing. And uh, you go out with someone? That's complicated. That's good. That's very good. So, let's move on. So, why is it complicated? I'm thrilled to have lured Jamie Attenberg, American novelist, away from the cookie platter in the green room. Uh, and, I, and I want to ask you, Jamie, about your new novel, The Middle Steins. Uh, it has a sort of an unusual premise. Its heroine, Matriarch Edie, is literally eating herself to death. Why? Well, she, she has some holes in her life. Um, she has an unhappy marriage, and um, perhaps her intellectual curiosity is not completely fulfilled in her life and her career. And uh, she's grown apart from her from her children as well, and is trying to, uh, you know, it's been decades that she's been kind of like filling herself up with food, and um, it's now reached that boiling point with her health. She likes food. She really likes food. She, I think, weighs by the end of the novel, twenty five stone. Where does that association of food and love stem from in in her in her childhood, in her background, in growing up in Chicago and now living in the suburbs? I think that when she was younger, um, and I think this is something that can happen in a lot of families, food is used to celebrate all kinds of emotions um, and all different kinds of life cycles, like a, you know, a funeral or a wedding or, uh, in this case, a bar mitzvah because it's a Jewish family. And uh, it's attached to all of these different things in her life. And at some point, she sort of just loses connection between um, when it feels good and when it feels bad. And uh, and also she and she's probably a f you know a food addict as well, so uh, I don't I'm not trying to make sort of a grandiose statement about American culture or anything like that at all. I'm really just talking about this one character, this one person, this one family. Uh, but for her, um, it's the thing that sort of put her into the the corner where she she's at, and then it becomes her, her only joy left. I know you say it's just about the one character, and you don't <laughs> want to make any grand statements, yeah. but you know for a lot of us food, certainly from older relatives, that they show their love by feeding us. And, and I love the fact that earlier, in the, at the very start of the novel, the, the one thing that Edie's slightly mismatched parents can agree on, aside from sex, is food. And they agree that food is love and love is food. And you also say that her, her father was just incapable of putting on weight because he'd had this long journey to America. He couldn't put on weight. You know, a classic immigrant story. Do you think that Jewish relationship with food is is more intense than other immigrant cultures, or is it just an immigrant thing generally? Oh, you know, I don't I don't know the answer to that question because I mean, it's pretty intense for sure. I think Jews love food. Um, my family loves food. Um, I think I personally think about food all the time. It's a great way to <laughs> fill that. I always say that if I had you know all the time back in the day that I thought about 
what I was going to eat for dinner, I'd have 10 more novels sitting in front of me. Um, but I've also had people read this book who are from, you know, Italian families or um, Irish families and, you know, all different kinds of cultures. I mean, there's just every culture sort of has a, a center around food. And I think you're going to give us a little taste of what the novel's about now. I'm just going to read um, from a chapter titled Edie 202 Pounds. This is discussing the Russian immigrant Jewish community in the suburbs of Chicago. Everybody was obsessed with Golda Meir and Edie Herzen's house. Her father and all his buddies, some from the synagogue, some from the university, a few fresh from Russia whom Edie's father had adopted into his life because he was always adopting people, spent weekends hunched over the kitchen table talking about her, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee, picking at the food in front of them, the plates of whitefish and herring, the bagels, the lox, the various spreads of sometimes indeterminate meat. Bright green pickles bursting with vinegar and salt, the cherry pastries covered with half-melted squiggles of frosting. Her mother would be slicing tomatoes and onions near the kitchen sink, a cigarette in her mouth, too. She wore her hair high and fluffy and dyed black, and there was always a new gold bracelet dangling around her wrist. She cared less than Edie's father did about all this, and she almost never went to the synagogue except on high holidays. When they moved to Skokie ten years before from Hyde Park, they left behind the synagogue that Edie's mother had grown up with, and suddenly practicing her faith became irrelevant without a personal sense of history attached to it. But she supported her husband and his friends. They could do all the praying on her behalf. She'd make sure they got fed. No one would leave her house hungry. Those poor, wifeless, childless, lonely men. Austin Ratner has already caused a stir in the States, and now here with his debut and award-winning novel, The Jump Artist, a fictionalized portrait of celebrity photographer Philippe Hausmann. Hausmann's earlier life in pre-war Austria couldn't have been further from the world of glamour photography. Wrongly accused of murdering his own father amid an atmosphere of fermenting anti-Semitism, he spent a long stretch behind bars. I tracked down Austin moments before he went on stage and started by asking him how he encountered Philippe Hausmann in the first place. Well, I kind of stumbled across the story. Um, as it turns out, there was a, I later discovered that, that one of his photographs of Albert Einstein was hanging on the bedroom uh, wall of my room as a kid. I, I didn't know that when I stumbled across the story. But I saw a reference to, to uh, something called the Austrian Dreyfus Affair which um, was an event that uh, affected Philippe Halsman's life when he was 22. He was falsely accused of murdering his father in the Austrian Alps while he was traveling. And um, later on, he, when he came to America, um, 20 or so years down the road, he became a very famous celebrity photographer. He called himself the inventor of jumpology, and he published a book in 1959 called Jump Book, where he got everybody from Brigitte Bardot to Marilyn Monroe jumping in the air. He felt that when you took a photo of someone jumping, it relaxed their defenses and you could see into their inner self. And I became um, curious about connecting the dots between his later life, which is so often so joyous, and um, photographed many famous celebrities, and then this tragic earlier part of his life. And there really wasn't anything much written about it in English, so I followed my curiosity and started uh, researching the story. That dark early episode of his life that, that was 
transformative in so many ways, forms the, the core, the, the emotional core of the novel. And it's, there's a lot of sort of courtroom drama in there and it's, it's really tense stuff. And such rich material. I, I wondered what made you want to fictionalize it. Were you not tempted just to write a straight biography? I did think about it. Um, I, I, I remember reading the prefatory note in um, Schindler's List by Thomas Keneally, and he said that the reason that he wrote that book as a novel was because he was a novelist. And it's sort of a cop-out, but at the same time, that is really why I write. I, I want to write fiction. And the, I was interested most of all in Philippe Halsman's inner life. And that is the, the, the novel is really what provides the resources to investigate the inner life. Um, and, and so I, I, I wavered a little bit, and I did think about writing it, trying to write it as a play. Um, but I, ultimately, I decided on the format of a, a, a novel that would be able to imagine the inner life and the inner experience, the journey, the emotional journey from sort of tragedy to, to joy. And the contrast between those dark days when he's cramped in this cell and those, the, the images that we now remember him for, it's just sublimely joyous Philippe as a young man, almost freeze-framed, it's almost like a freeze-frame, he's almost taking a snapshot with his imagination and that image of the fall haunts him. Do you think that the work that has become his legacy, those jumps, was inspired by that fall? He never said anything to that effect, but it, it, I've interpreted his work that way, definitely. Um, in a metaphorical sense, if nothing else, there's a, a clear sense of inverting that horrible, tragic fall that, that uh, marked his life permanently with these acts of levitation. And the jump is, was not only, I think, a metaphor for Philippe Halsman in his work, but it was a metaphor that describes the arc of his life, where he sort of pulled himself up by this act of magic levitation. It wouldn't be Jewish Book Week without a dash of controversy. Judith Butler is the post-structuralist philosopher whose groundbreaking work has seen her roam across literary theory, feminism and gender studies. Most recently, she's been exploring Jewish philosophy with her new book, Parting Ways, Jewishness and the Critique of Zionism. I caught up with her earlier and started by asking why she's decided to take on this most complex and fraught of topics. No, look, the, what's important to know is that when I was 14 years old, I studied philosophy with my rabbi, and that was my entrance into philosophical life. So Martin Buber, existential theology, Spinoza, um, <clears throat> concerns about um, German philosophy and German fascism, and was German philosophy anti-Semitic, how to think about that. Um, these were all questions I was asking in high school. So I began to study philosophy in the context of my Jewish education. And then I went on to study European philosophy more generally. I wrote a dissertation on Hegel, of all things, and then I started working on feminism. So most people don't know that I have this particular background, and it, so it comes as a surprise oh, she was working on gender, now she's working on Jewish things, what happened? Uh, but the, the fact is, is that my Jewish formation is my intellectual formation. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to make that more plain. And also, um, <clears throat> I'm struggling, uh, as I think many 
Jews are with trying to think about what is a Jewish ethic, um, what what kinds of orientations do we have toward living together with non-Jews? Are there religious or historical uh, resources for thinking about peaceable coexistence um, that we can draw from in the Jewish tradition and and in and in other traditions? So. Um, I think it's always been my concern, but probably simply not the focus of, of my intellectual work. You're, you're adamant that, that it should be possible to be uh, speak out against Israel, to be anti-Israel, and, and yet not perceived as anti-Semitic, not be perceived as a self-hating Jew. And, and you make a very strong case that, that in a way a certain criticism of Israel stems from a, a deep strain of Jewish philosophical thought. But, you know, at the same time, I suppose some of your views put you in somewhat uncomfortable making company. Uh, you know, if you just look at the average anti-Israel march and, and scan some of the banners that mm. are also being mm. waved in the air, yeah. I imagine that as a, as a gay woman, they make you a little uncomfortable. Any march that's homophobic or anti-Semitic is not going to be one where I'm going to stay around. Uh, I mean, I, I will march against it or I'll, I'll be away. I'm not going to participate in any um, political organization that um, that is misogynist or homophobic or uh, anti-Semitic. It's, it's just not possible for me. So that's a bottom line. But you see, I don't understand myself as anti-Israel. I mean, I, I find that, um, I find the, the language, <clears throat> either you're pro-Israel or anti-Israel, it, it sounds a lot like football to me, you know, like, um, and I, I, don't, I don't see it that way. I mean, if you ask the question, what would be the best way for people in that region to live together uh, without conflict, um, then you're actually wanting the best for everyone. Um, and you're wanting a nonviolent um, future for, for Israel um, um, and, and for Palestine, what, however that ends up being defined. run into Michael Joseph of Joseph's Bookstore who is tucking into a particularly nice delicious looking taboulet sort of salad and wrap and and I I kind of want to interrupt him but I'm not sure if we can, if we can it looks too good well, don't want to start off on a bad note but it's not <laughs> nearly as good as it looks I can tell you not nearly as good as cafe also presumably not nearly as good as cafe also absolutely right you're going to pl plug in for the restaurant next to the bookstore. Uh, what are you here to see? I've just seen Jacqueline Rose and Judith Butler. Judith Butler has a, she's very controversial. She's been called a, a sort of strident, militant anti-Zionist. Is, is that your take on her? The bit that's missing for me is to know what she objects about in detail about what the so-called Zionists are doing. Anybody can make great general humanitarian statements which sound very good uh, it doesn't really take you very much further forward in terms of the nitty-gritty it's the nitty-gritty that actually you need to debate I think that's what the, the Jewish tradition is to take apart the actual details of what you're talking about not the wonderful general principles that nobody can disagree with. 
we, we, we've snuck up on two people who, who are trying to have a quiet cup of coffee with the newspaper ahead of their event. Uh, who are you? Hi, uh, my name's Joe, Joe Millis. And you're here to see something later on, I think? Yes, I'm here to see uh, Fania Oz, uh, with whom I was at university many, many, many moons ago. And she's just written a wonderful book about uh, Jews and words, about how the fact we are more text people than a bloodline of people. I hope you've got a really embarrassing question about her university years to ask in the Q&A. Only I won't ask it because she's got a lot of embarrassing things to say back at me. This is not your first time at Jewish Book Week, or is it? No. No, I'm a regular here. This is one of the cultural highlights of the year. Um, There are various events in the calendar and you see the same sort of faces and come across the same people. Um, And I'm a regular. Yeah, I go back about 15, 20 years when it comes to Jewish Book Week. I, I remember when it was in the old place where the acoustics were dreadful. It's uh, so much better here at King's Place. that It actually makes it worthwhile, more than worthwhile. Fantastic. You've both got form then. Is, is there one thing in particular you're looking forward to this year? Absolutely, yes. Um, Saturday night there's going to be a double bill. Um, there's one session on the um, Israeli television drama and how it's been translated into you know, Homeland and so on, which should be really interesting. And then there's a second session on six-word memoirs, which we came to last year, talk about groupies. Um, we came to the similar session last year, but with a different lineup. Um, and there'll be a group of musicians, comedians, writers doing improvisational stuff around six-word memoirs, which should be really fun. I kind of want to ask you what your six-word Jewish book week is completely lost for words <laughs> how unusual <laughs> yes six you got there <laughs> i'm thrilled to have lured fania or salzberger away from the green room into our little nook she has resisted playing the piano as every guest we've had in here so far despite the fact there's a little steinway an up white steinway in the corner there Um, She is, of course, a top Israeli historian in her own right, and now she's one half of a writing team with her dad, Amos Oz. Their book is called Jews and Words, and it is an absolute delight, journeying across Jewish literature from ancient shepherds to Yiddish poets and Jerry Seinfeld. Fania, you write early on, ours is not a bloodline, but a text line. How do you account for our love of words? Is it, they're portable? Is it to do with our itinerancy? Thank you for this lovely opening. Um, how do I account for our love of words? First of all, I think that our whole nationhood hinges on word, on words, on texts, rather than on blood or sword or territory, although I'm a proud Israeli. I think that Jews have been texted to their own books and to each other from very early on. People sometimes say that modern nationality beca- began after the print revolution when people were able to read massively and imagine belonging to a nation, the British nation, or the French or the German. In the Jewish case, it began much, much earlier. We did not have to wait for print. We had our books, our bestsellers, our masterpieces, from around the year 800 before Common Era. They kept us going, they kept us together. Which books in particular kept us together? Above everything else, the Bible. The Hebrew Bible is absolutely amazing. If you haven't read it, please rush to read it. If you can manage to read it in Hebrew, please do. It is an absolute masterpiece. And we, both myself and my co-author, being 
totally secular to the bone. We do not have a religious bone in our bodies, and yet we think that the Hebrew Bible is no less than a miracle, a secular miracle, but a miracle indeed. So we call ourselves the atheists of the book. And one of the earliest verses in the book of Genesis, God tells man, go forth and multiply, tells Abraham, go forth and multiply. The Bible itself heeded that particular command and it went forth and multiplied. So everything else is piled upon the Bible. The Jewish books, of course, the Talmud, the rabbinic literature, medieval poetry, enlightenment, you name it, modern literature. But of course, not only Jewish books, everything from William Shakespeare, indeed, all the way through Moby Dick to 21st century literature, somehow hails from the Hebrew Bible. It is the great cultural multiplier. And a wonderful source of strong heroines, as, as you say. You have a special section in, in the book on vocal uh, heroines, vocal women. Well, we dedicated a whole chapter to women. However, the women did not agree to remain confined in that chapter. So they're climbing out of chapter two and lurking all over up and down the book because women are so absolutely fascinating in Jewish history almost all the time. They were strong, they were mothers, they were wordy and bookish. We have poetesses and prophetesses in the Bible. And even in the Talmud, which is a totally, I mean, the Talmud is like Oxford and Cambridge in the 19th century. It's men only, you know, uh, uh, area. And still women manage to sneak in, not very many, but the brightest. And then, you know, going on, women show up almost everywhere in every Jewish diaspora. Now, they have two things to carry, a child in one hand, a book in the other. And they teach the child to read or send the child to the cheder to learn very early on. This is the bookish mother that everyone seems to have had. And this is again unique and absolutely exhilarating. I should probably ask you at this point uh, about the process of writing with your dad. He is your dad, but he's also a man who is often uh, suggested as a recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Did he pull rank at any point, or is it really you who has the upper hand in that relationship? Well, you know, everybody asks this question. It's really interesting. We were both invited by a wonderful man called Felix Posen, head of the Posen Foundation, who is a great visionary of Judaism as culture, secular Judaism, to co-author this book. And at first, obviously, we said no, and then we said yes, because it occurred to us that this would be the natural continuation of a long conversation we've had for many, many years. My advice to the listeners is, do not try to write a book with your dad or mom before you are 50, but write any number of books with them after you are 50. Usually that works well. I just, I just have one more question. You write uh, at one point that Jewish textuality has come full circle from tablet to tablet and scroll to scroll indeed. And as a physical object, Jews and words, it's, it's beautiful. It's got this lovely matte textile cover that you just want to sort of run your fingers across. Do you worry that anything of Jewish textuality will be lost as it's sort of digitized? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a historian of the book in my free time, so I've been putting a lot of thought into that. And of course, this book by Yale University Press was beautifully designed by Sonia, their house designer. I think it's a wonderful object. For my part, I also love touching my iPad screen. I think it's 
uh, sleek and metallic and has its own aesthetic. But my dad freaks out whenever he's near an electronic book or a computer. And so I think that he need not freak out and that he should understand that books are here to stay. Books are paper books. Yes, they're codices. They're not going anywhere, but they're going to be enhanced by the age of the Internet and enhance it in turn. So far, they seem to be walking hand in hand or word by word together. And I think it will continue. The Internet is Talmudic. It is a Talmudic space in so many ways. The hyperlinks, the wordiness, the sheer volume of it all, the textuality. And so the world through the internet is discovering books. And some cultures who never really had interest in books before are becoming interested, including young people. I think we are becoming retextualized as we go along, and that's partially also thanks to the internet. And it, it sounds like for now we probably can't find your dad on Twitter. <laughs> he doesn't have a clue what Twitter is, but I tweet for him too. <laughs> that's what daughters ought to do. Okay, it's time to dust off the statuette for this year's winner of the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize. Our shortlist of six included Amos Oz, Cynthia Ozick, and Bernard Wasserstein. This is also the first year that American authors have been eligible. No wonder it's taken us a record number of hours to decide on our winner. And who is that? Well, with just a few minutes to go until the big announcement, I'm off to take my place on the stage, but I'll be back afterwards for a quick debrief with one of my fellow judges, journalist and writer Sam Leith. Pleasure in announcing the winner of the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Literary Award 2013, Shalom Auslander for Hope, a Tragedy. So that's it. The winner is Shalom Auslander, uh, of course a veteran of last year's show from Jewish Book Week and very well deserved too, though I confess that mine was the vote that prevented the decision from being unanimous. Cynthia Rosick's Foreign Bodies was the title I would love to have seen win. But what kind of a Jewish book prize would it be if we'd all agreed? Uh, with me now is fellow judge Sam Leith, one of Auslander's biggest supporters. Sam, can you just give us a flavour of the novel? Well, it's, it's a very Jewish book. Um, how could it be otherwise when its protagonist is called Kugel and he, the chief plot twist is that he finds Anne Frank living in his attic. It's a very, very blackly funny book um, and a kind of raucously funny book. Um, and it's, it sort of pole vaults over the, over the line in good taste terms. Um, but it does so, as I, as I argued, I really, I think because it's trying to revolt against the idea of good taste, this kind of suffocating idea that for a writer of Auslander's generation who's grown up with the, you know, the Holocaust kind of looming over him and a whole sort of set of ideas about the Holocaust which is sort of received now at second hand, um, that that kind of solemnity, that, that sort of received tradition is very, very kind of um, suffocating as I say. It's kind of, and so this is a kind of real, um, you know, it's a kind of punk rock attack on, on all of that. It should be clear, it's not a kind of attack on the, you know, the people who've lived through the Holocaust or on the, the seriousness of the events. It's more a kind of um, an attack on what you, what you might call kind of Holocaust porn and Holocaust cliche and all that sort of, all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a, it's a serious book as well as a very funny one. 
Now, I, I need to ask, you're not Jewish, but we did get a tuchus in, the, uh, in your little speech earlier about, the, uh, about this novel. So, so, you know, you weren't Jewish at the start of the judging process. How Jewish are you feeling now? I think I'm, I, I think I'm probably about 21% Jewish now after all these books. But, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's ebbing away. Um, I think, you know, if you asked me the same question next week, I'd say arse. Well, that's it for this month's Sounds Jewish from Jewish Book Week. There are still a few more days left of the festival. Time for you to come down to King's Place to catch up with some more amazing writers. My thanks to A.B. Hoshua, Jamie Attenberg, Fania Salzberger, Jonathan Friedland, Judith Butler and Austin Ratner. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Hepzibah Anderson and my producer, Sarah Peters, goodbye and happy reading. Shalom, shalom.